Good morning. I'm Chris Williams, and this is Fordham Conversations. Every year, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences hosts the Oscars. This award show is often seen as a benchmark for the greatest achievements in film within the past year. Today on our show, we'll be talking about how the Best Picture nominee, Her, blurs the lines between technology and love. But first, Fordham Conversations producer Alan Kamlick talks with editor-in-chief of Rotten Tomatoes, Matt Atchity, about the Oscars, movie reviews, and how those two things intertwine. For our listeners who don't know who you are, what is Rotten Tomatoes? Uh, Rotten Tomatoes is the biggest aggregator of movie critics online. We poll dozens, sometimes hundreds of critics for a particular film, and we will tell you what percentage of critics like a movie and what percentage don't like a movie. If 60% or more of critics like a movie, we call it fresh. If they don't, we call it rotten. For a movie that gets 75% on what we call our tomato meter, with a minimum number of critics, we actually call it certified fresh. Uh, And that's kind of a badge of distinction, and we basically protect people from bad movies. We've been doing so since 1999. And uh, who are these critics? What we have is a pool of critics that are professionals that, not working now, at least at some point in their past, have worked as professional critics. As we've seen newspapers dial back on the amount of criticism that they have you know, from people on staff, we'll find places, guys like Wesley Morris, when he left the Boston Globe and went over to Grantland, we're still picking up reviews from him. But it's a vetted list of people that are considered experts in the field of film criticism. And does Ron Tomatoes do its own reviews? I do reviews in a few different places, but my score does not count towards the tomato meter, as my wife would inform me. That would be a conflict of interest. Uh, (laughs) We do our, you know, we can share our own reactions, but we pretty much lead with what the professional critics are saying. So now we're moving on to the Academy Awards. We all understand the arts part of the Academy Awards of Arts and Sciences, but where do the sciences come from? You know, the sciences are things like, arguably, the special effects that happen. You know, they give out awards for Mm. effects. I I think that movie making is an interesting mix of both scientific and artistic achievement. You can look at especially the way visual effects awards have progressed in the last 30 years, 40 years, and see this huge difference in the way things used to look, even in the last 10 years, the way things with CGI I remember, for instance, Jurassic Park being groundbreaking scientific achievement for uh, special effects, for visual effects with the CGI they were using. But if you go back and look at that now, it doesn't quite hold up to the way that movie, you know, to something like, say, Avatar, as far as realism. And I think that's definitely the science part of it. So how are the members of the Academy picked? They're invited by existing members. Um, It used to be, up until a few years ago, that if you got nominated for an Academy Award, that was an automatic in. But over the years, because there are so many nominations for actors, the the acting branch of the Academy was weighted really heavily in that favor. There were far more actors that were in than anything else. So I, I think that the Academy, the different branches have started to be a little bit more discerning, and it's getting a nomination isn't an automatic entrance into the academy. A 2012 study conducted by the LA Times found that of the roughly 6,000 members in the academy, they are, quote, markedly less diverse than the movie-going public. Oscar voters are nearly 94% Caucasian, 77% male. Blacks are about 2% of the academy, and Latinas are less than 2%. Oscars have a median age of 62, and people younger than 50 constitute only about maybe 14% of the membership. How accurate do you think these claims are? Uh, you know, when that study came out a couple of years ago, everybody 
you know, at least in my line of work as entertainment journalism, we all kind of figured that that was pretty accurate. You know, the joke around town for a while is that, yeah, the Oscars are the old white guy club. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, I'll put it this way. I think that at least the perception of that worried the Academy enough that they have made definite uh, attempts to diversify the appearance of their membership. I think that they have really tried to deflect that and try and show that they are a more diverse group than that report would indicate. Do you think that they're more diverse now than they were when the report got released in 2012? I don't know that they are necessarily more diverse. You know, they don't invite a ton of people every year, but one of the most visible steps that they did as their current president is... uh, Cheryl Boone Isaacs, who is a woman and African-American. So I think that they are at least trying to make some very symbolic gestures in that direction. In your opinion, do you think the Academy's opinion about movies is reflected by movie-going audiences and or people in the film industry? Uh, I think it's more so the people in the film industry. You know, it is an organization of filmmaking professionals. So, yes, it's a smaller number. It's it's 6,000 or so people. But, you know, the amount of people in Los Angeles alone that are solely working full-time on movies isn't a giant number. So I, I think that as, you know, at that point, you're looking at something that does generally reflect kind of the prevailing tastes in movies by the people that make them. Now, that being said, does that reflect what the public goes and sees? Not at all. If that was the case, then you would see Adam Sandler consistently getting (laughs) Oscar nominations because his movies do gangbusters at the box office. There's definitely an audience for that. But, you know, the Academy doesn't really think he's doing art. Do you think that the Academy should acknowledge what the people want? You know, there's there's an award that does that. It's called the People's Choice. Um, <laughs> and really, the box office reflects that. I think that the Academy wants to have it both ways. You know, we've seen, for instance, uh, the number of Best Picture nominees expand out to as many as 10 each year. And I think that that was originally an idea from the Academy to try and get more mainstream films in there after there was a backlash when The Dark Knight didn't get nominated for an Academy Award. You know, do I think that the public should necessarily have that? I, I don't know that they really should. You know, the, the Academy Awards really is Hollywood and the filmmaking professionals honoring what they think are the most important films of the year. And I think it's very interesting when you get a group of artists picking what they think is the, the best or the most noteworthy of the year. You kind of touched on it with this last question, but why do you think the Academy's opinion is so valued? I think because you've got the biggest stars in the world picking the movies that they like. And, I mean, is it gossipy? Yeah, it kind of is. But I think that when you get that level of star power in one room, it's pretty amazing. We kind of talked about this a little bit earlier, which was the Best Picture nominees got expanded to 10. Why do you think that is? You said it was it had a lot to do with the public backlash, but why don't we see that with things like Best Actor or Best Supporting Actress or, I don't know, Best Sound Editing? Why do we only see that with Best Picture? That's a good question. I, I'm not really sure why they wouldn't expand every category. I think it would be almost unmanageable. Um, But honestly, I think that it was an attempt to kind of mollify some of the critics. They may go back to five at some point. You know, we'll we'll see. Right now, you know, it's turned out they wanted to get more mainstream movies. I don't know that that's necessarily worked out. You know, the the general consensus is you can look at the five directors that get nominated for Best Director and figure whichever movies don't get nominated for Best Director but got nominated for Best Picture, our chances are out of the running. That's typically the consensus, although Argo... uh, did win Best Picture, and Ben Affleck, as we all remember, wasn't even nominated for Best Director. 
thinking about the Oscars in relation to Rotten Tomatoes, how effective has Rotten Tomatoes been at predicting the Oscars? You know, it's interesting. Uh, well, you know, my staff and I are okay, but critical acclaim doesn't match up with how the Oscars tend to win. Typically, the movie that does the best with critics doesn't end up winning Best Picture. It's usually the one that when you compare, you know, our tomato meter across the nominees, typically it's the second or third ranked movie that wins. I was looking at all the Best Picture nominees on your website. Of the nine nominees, all of them have about a 92% or above on the tomato meter, meaning that 92% or above number of critics gave the movie essentially a thumbs up or a fresh tomato. The only movie that doesn't have even an 80, is The Wolf of Wall Street. It's sitting about 77% of critics actually enjoyed that movie, according to Rotten Tomatoes. So why do you think that is? Why is The Wolf of Wall Street sitting out of the pack? There's a couple things going on with Wolf of Wall Street. A, it is a film that is shocking in its content, and I think that that put off some critics. They got a little overwhelmed by it. The other issue, too, is where critics had some issues is that, you know, it's a three-hour movie, and the critics that don't like it tended to come down on Martin Scorsese, the director, for doing a movie that is that over-the-top, that is so kind of in-your-face for three hours. Um, you know, again, they're just kind of overwhelmed, and that's where that came out now. Did that get reflected in the voting at the Academy? We'll see on Oscar night. But, I, you know, I think that's one of the movies that might have a shot. Now that we got into it, let's talk a little bit about these Best Picture nominees. So we just covered The Wolf of Wall Street. What do you think about Gravity? How do you think that's going to do? I think Gravity will probably sweep the technical awards. I, I think it's got a shot at winning Best Picture. It's a tough race to call this year. I think Gravity's got a good shot because, you know, there are those voters that like when a movie, it's a good movie and does well at the box office, gets a major release, as Gravity did. You know, that got a big release and it did really well with uh, audiences. You know, predicting the Oscars is tough because you are trying to predict how 6,000 people are going to vote, and most of them are, you know, somewhat artistically conservative old white dudes. So it can be a bit of a turkey shoot, but I think that Gravity's got a shot, although I'd say that probably the favorite at this point would be 12 Years a Slave. 12 Years a Slave, and 12 Years a Slave actually has a Best Actor nominee, Best Supporting Actor nominee, and a Best Supporting Actress nominee. Is that a good indicator to see how a movie will do in the Oscars? It can be, but sometimes it's not. You know, if you remember uh, way back when The Color Purple got nominated for a lot of Oscars and right. didn't win anything. So, you know, I, I think that it kind of depends. It is a very competitive year this year in some of the categories, uh, especially for Best Actor. I would not want to be nominated and have to go up against Shuido Ejiofor for, <laughs> for 12 Years a Slave or Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club. I think those two are in the lead. But, you know, by the same token, I wouldn't count Bruce Dern out for his performance in Nebraska. So, uh, you know, and part of that is because he's been out here in L.A. doing a lot of screenings with a lot of Q&A sessions afterwards, and he's been, if not overtly schmoozing, he's been making himself very available. And, you know, when it comes to voting time, people might remember, oh, yeah, you know, I talked to Bruce, and he was sweet. I'd love to give him this award. <laughs> so let me just quickly go down the list of Best Picture nominees for our listeners who don't know. It's 12 Years a Slave, Her, Nebraska, American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Dallas Buyers Club, Philomena, Gravity, and Wolf of Wall Street. Of those nine movies, what do you think would be the two top contenders? My gut feeling right now is that it's going to be 12 Years a Slave. And of the nine nominees, it seems that there's maybe like two or three that are kind of favorites. Is there a case that movies get nominated for Best Picture because the Academy wants to show that they appreciate the movie for its artistic talent? 
You know, that's a tough question to answer. You know, you could say some of these movies got nominated for their subject matter. I think that Her is a movie that got nominated specifically on its artistic merit. You know, that's such an out-there story for the Academy to follow. It seems like kind of an offbeat one and not traditional. I think that's the one that really affected a lot of people and somewhat surprising to see it make the cut. Although it's one of my favorite movies of 2013. What, if anything would you change about the Oscars? I'd make the show shorter. <laughs> you know what I would do? I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd make that show like the Golden Globes where people are sitting having dinner and they're drinking <laughs> because that makes for a much more exciting show as opposed to everybody sitting in that theater just you know, waiting their turn the whole time. You want to see those really emotional uh, thank you speeches? Yeah, exactly. Somebody, you know, runs up to the stage and they get up there, they've had a few drinks and they're a little crazy. <laughs> like, that's good TV. I've been speaking with Editor-in-Chief Matt Atchity from Rotten Tomatoes. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, happy to do it, man. Happy to do it. Atchity! He names the flicks and the gang makes flicks. Matt Atchity! He's a schlubby guy and when he drops by, the gang has to guess. Do the critics scores make it rotten or fresh? This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. I'm Chris Williams, and today on the show, we're talking about the Oscars. One of the films nominated for an Academy Award this year is Spike Jones's Her. It's a movie about a man, Theodore, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who falls in love with an operating system named Samantha, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. The movie explores love and intimacy with a machine. To find out more about this, I talked to Damian Lyons. He's a professor in the Department of Computer Science and Robotics here at Fordham University. We talked about what it means to form human connections with a machine or an operating system, and don't worry if you haven't seen the movie. We don't get into specifics, and we won't spoil it for you. I promise. One of the interesting things about this movie is that it does specify the program, Samantha, is an operating system. It's not just the computer. It's not just a piece of software or an intelligent robot. It's the operating system. That says something, I think, about the appreciation of computers uh, today. The operating system is a very specific part of the computer. So the operating system is the set of programs running on your computer that allow you to use that computer without being an expert. So their job is to make the resources of the computer available to you. Could an operating system be as intelligent and endearing as the one in the, uh, in the movie? Well, it's interesting because that's exactly the right direction for an operating system. Uh, a key component of the operating system is called the user interface which is the part of the operating system that deals directly with the user of the computer. And in many cases, the user interface is based on, for example, a textual interface where you have to type some words in. Um, a slightly more flexible user interface is based on what's called the WIMP paradigm, W-I-M-P, which is Windows. So you've got a Windows interface, and you have a mouse, and you can point. And in tablets, for example, you don't even have the mouse. You just point directly. And even more... Uh, easy-to-use interface would be uh, a natural user, what they call natural user interfaces. So a user interface that uses technology to look at you, to appreciate what your body language is, where you're looking, to understand what you're saying, and to carry out your requests based on that information, rather than forcing you to, for example, pick up a mouse or move to a keyboard or whatever. From the point of view of, of uh, the development of user interface technology, the, the movie is, is bang on. And I think uh, probably movie audiences reacted to that, uh, familiar with um, technology such as Siri, 
which are very widely known. Um, and the idea there, it, it sounds endearing. It seems like it's kind of cute and, and neat, but at the same time, it's really bottom line oriented. If it's hard to use, people don't buy it. So you could have great technology. Nobody can use it. They don't buy it. Um, if you have a technology like Siri or like Samantha in this particular movie, which makes the functionality of the device very visible and easy to use, it means basically you sell more. And that's what the game is about. From that perspective, the movie is going in exactly the right direction. So as someone who studies computer science and robotics and artificial intelligence, do you think that it's realistic that as artificial intelligence gets better and better and um, more user-friendly that people would start to form connections with these artificial intelligent beings? The only part of what you said that I would draw your attention to is the word artificially intelligent. I'm, sure, I'm not sure that that needs to be in there. I think if you look even back in history a little bit, folks were able to have emotional connections to pet rocks. And of course then there are minimally automated toys like Furby and they seem to appeal to us at a level that allows us to easily make an emotional connection to them. So it's not necessarily the intelligence that, that we're drawn to. I think in this case, in the case of the movie Her, the intelligence does come out a little bit and it's nicely focused in the role of the helper, the operating system. Part of building a deeper relationship with any person is the mutual interactions that you can have. So if you think of it if you if you have a dog, people in general love their pets. So with a dog, you can take the dog walking and the dog loves to be with you. So you're mutually drawn to one another. But you can't really sit down and have a good discussion about how your day was with the dog. On the other hand, maybe that's an advantage. Maybe that's one of the reasons people like dogs. I don't know. But the amount of interaction you can have with an artificially intelligent entity is much greater. And an entity such as Samantha is designed to make it easy for you to interact with. So in a way, these two things are, are playing off one another very, very well. The operating system is designed to make it easy for you to interact with it and get what you want from it and have some kind of beneficial, useful interaction. On the other hand, to develop an emotional relationship with something, you need to interact with it. You need to be around it a lot. It, you need to have a lot of positive interactions with it. Exactly the kind of thing that would, would happen with an intelligent operating system, such as the one in the movie. People are great at developing relationships with all, all kinds of pieces of technology. But to develop a relationship more like the kind of relationship you have with other humans, this kind of mutual interaction and, and ability to continually interest the other entity with speculations and mutual participation in events, those are all things which make that more likely, I think. The operating system as depicted in the movie, you said it seems realistic that that's where it's heading since it's more user-friendly. And in the movie itself, it's not just Joaquin Phoenix who falls in love with the operating system. Like, there's talk about other people in the world also falling in love with their operating system. So do you see that as a possible trend as they get more user-friendly? People will form connections with them to the point where maybe those things will exist solely for people to have connections with? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, that part of the movie was a little interesting, and it seems to be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. Today, you can walk around and see people talking on Bluetooth all the time, and they look very isolated, and you know they're having these conversations, but they're so separate from the people standing right beside them. So it's, I thought it was a little bit of a social commentary on that as well. But to get to your other point, which is, what if the technology was made just for interacting with people? I don't think that's in the least unlikely. 
as a matter of fact, one of the key reasons that the videotape player became successful and one of the key reasons the internet became successful are things like porn. It seems to drive the greater mass of interaction. So I think it's entirely possible that somebody will come up with the idea of making money from building devices which people want to interact with and maybe even fall in love with and develop strong relationships, life relationships with. Usually in movies, it's not so unusual to have like a movie where a character, you know, befriends a robot, you know, a physical robot. We've seen that before a bunch of times. But like the thing about this movie that was a little bit unique is that Samantha is a little bit more elusive because you can't see her. She exists solely within the phone and the computer. The technology such as Samantha and such as Siri, those are what we would normally in the field call disembodied technologies. So one of the unique things about what we're doing at Fordham in robotics is uh, it talks about embodied intelligence. So embodied intelligence is intelligence that survives in the, the same world that you and I survive in. And you might think, what difference does it make? If you talk to someone on the phone, how can you tell if they're embodied? There was an old joke. You've probably seen it. You know, two dogs sitting at a computer and I guess underneath it is written the line, you know, on, on the Internet, anyone can be a dog. <laughs> um, is it the same? I would argue that it isn't. It isn't even close. That the embodiment is a crucial aspect of who we are and what we are. And that intelligence that's disembodied won't be as attractive to us. There is a program called ELISA. It was developed many, many years ago. And it was one of the first pieces of technology that was designed to interact with people. It was a, uh, a therapist. So if you said something to ELISA like, I'm so angry at my father, then ELISA would come back to you with something like, why are you angry at your father? So it would take what you said and just recast it slightly. And the interesting thing is that folks love this. They would sit there, you know, for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, talking with what appeared to be a pleasant therapist. But after a while, they would realize that there weren't enough points of connection with Eliza to justify an ongoing relationship. And I think it's the same with disembodied entities. If all you do is, as the character in this movie, you know, if you're in a a mobile device looking out through a camera at the world as Theodore shows this character many different things that he enjoys in his environment. If that's all you ever do, if all you ever do is see them as images and you never experience them, you're never part of them, you never participate in them, then you don't really appreciate them the same way that an embodied entity would. And I think that ultimately will mean that you don't have the same level of potential interaction as an embodied entity. So the kinds of stuff we're doing is is more focused on where you have teams of robots that have to work together and have to, for example, explore buildings. We're interested in search and rescue or have to find, uh, for example, hidden uh, explosive devices. In this case, those entities have to experience the same environment that the rescue workers have to experience when they go into the building. They need to understand that there are certain places that are safe, there are certain places that aren't safe, that there are particular ways you react to patterns of sensory information coming in. And this also makes it easier to communicate with rescue workers. And my argument would be that it's actually very difficult, unless you have an embodied entity like that, it would actually be very difficult to communicate with rescue workers. Imagine trying to talk to someone who'd never been inside a ruined building, a building that's partially fallen down. Never seen that, but you have to try and guide them through to a particular location. That'd be kind of tough, I would think. And even though the movie kind of glosses over that, 
and, and maybe doesn't focus too much on interactions in the real world. I think that's where these kind of disembodied entities would actually fall down, ultimately. So I think there are roles for artificially intelligent operating systems, the user interface component anyway, and I think they will be very engrossing for humans and people will have good relationships with them. But I don't think they'll have, with those kind of entities, I don't think they'll have the kind of relations they have with other people. You have to remember that Samantha was, was written by a human who has embodied experience, so she can say the kind of things that she needs to say. Clearly there's a lot that, that went into that character that's more than just an artificially intelligent device talking to a, a, a person. There's a, a lot of experience went into making that an engrossing character. So I, I don't know how much you can carry over to, for example, you know, a, a better version of Siri. One of the things you were just talking about with your studies here at Fordham is robots interacting with each other. And that actually plays an important part in the movie as well, because all these operating systems, when they're not interacting with their owners, so to say, they're interacting with each other and learning from each other. All these different operating systems, they're able to communicate. Another very interesting point. Uh, I guess I would start off first by just pointing out the similarity to, to human society. The prevalence or the ease of communication is what has enabled scientific advance to increase steadily over the years. So if you, if you think back perhaps to the, the Middle Ages, where it was very difficult for people to get around, the state of technology in society at that point was relatively low compared to where we are now. And then with the Renaissance and the exchange of information, more readily available travel, the speed of technological advancement increased. So communication has a lot to do with how quickly you can advance society. So in terms of the, the premise in this movie, that all the operating systems had to get, you know, get together and kind of advance, that's where I, I, f I found a beginning to depart a little bit from at least what made sense to me but you know of course anything can happen I guess why she had to go I guess to a group update Mo most of us are familiar with operating systems being updated you know on their own why, why would they have to be together to upgrade so that seemed a little strange it seemed like a reference to something called perhaps you're familiar with it the singularity so this is the idea from, I think, a Ray Kurzweil, amongst others, that at some point the capability of artificially intelligent entities is going to be such that they're more intelligent than people. I find that a singularly ill-defined concept. But, okay, I can accept that there can come a point where they can outthink us on many scores, and that's something that is frightening. What happens to humans then? So it's an, maybe it's our insecurity rather than the issue. What happens to humans at this point? So I think that's what that part of the movie was referring to. So the operating systems were all got together, they'd advanced so much that they didn't need physical mechanism to do processing. And now they're all heading off together, I guess, to advance at their own pace and speed. I think that aspect of it is, as I said, it's maybe catering more to the traditional, I hate to say it, but in a lot of uh, Western movies, technology is evil, has a connotation of evil, and ultimately does not do humans good. As opposed to, for example, Japan, where technology is widely seen as something that's beneficial for humans. Every Japanese person loves robots. They know robots are good, and they're willing to trust robots, but you could not get that in the West. Most folks figure robots are all, at their heart, they're all terminators who want to get you in the end. And I think that's where the, the movie was taking Samantha, towards this concept of the singularity, you know, technology maybe not being that good for humans us being left behind by it rather than being taken along and enriched by the, by the experience. It is true, I have to say, 
that when you look at an operating system and you interact with it, it's a little bit like the analogy of the swan. If you look at a swan, they look very elegant. But of course, underneath the water, the feet are going like crazy to keep the swan moving around. An operating system is like that. On the surface, it doesn't look like there's a lot going on. But underneath, there's a lot going on. So computers operate very, very quickly at timescales we can't envisage. And they never stop. There's never a point at which a computer is not doing something. So from that perspective, the fact that Samantha was speaking to whatever, 8,631 other operating systems, that's entirely possible. Certainly, there's enough spare capacity in, in terms of time for the operating system to do that and also do what a person needs. Do you have any other topics specifically that you'd want to talk about that we didn't get to? One final thing that I would say, though, is the title, her, the title is in the objective case. So it's her rather than she, which would be subjective. And I'm not sure what they, they were going for in that, but it speaks to me a lot. Because from my perspective, I don't really think artificial intelligence is something you can define by anything but behavior. So if you look at an entity and it's performing the way you think an intelligent entity would perform, I think that's the only test. That's the so-called Turing test, a version of the Turing test. I think that's the only rule you can use. You can't look inside the entity and say, well, it's built this way, so therefore it's intelligent. So using the objective form of the pronoun her really means that Theodore in this case is projecting personhood onto Samantha and it's not that Samantha is originating personhood if it was she then I would read it as saying that the movie director is saying that Samantha is projecting personhood on the other hand there's a famous science fiction book and movie called she so maybe they were just trying to avoid that. <laughs> thanks so much for joining me today I appreciate it thank you This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. We'll be back next Saturday at 7 a.m. And don't worry if you missed the show. They're all available to download as a podcast or stream online at WFUV.org. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.